Hello, and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, we hear from theoretical physicist Sean M. Carroll. Sean guides us through the strange and sometimes daunting topic of quantum mechanics, from Einstein and Bohr to Schrodinger's cat and the many worlds interpretation. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 22nd of January 2020. You can get tickets for upcoming talks and live streams by heading to our website, rigb.org. Please leave this episode a rating and a review to let us know what you think and help more people discover the podcast. And now, over to Sean Carroll. Thank you very much, everybody. It's a wonderful pleasure to be here at the Royal Institution. This is my favorite lecture hall to talk about science in. Of course, other people have talked about science here before me. There's this wonderful legacy that we have, this wonderful history of not just lectures, but demonstrations here at the Royal Institution, from Michael Faraday to uh, Humphrey Davy. And I'm a theoretical physicist. I feel like I'm at a disadvantage. I don't really do demonstrations, but I thought, it's the Royal Institution. I should at least try to do some sort of demonstration. So we're going to try. I can't, there's no guarantee of success. That's the beauty of science, right? You, know, you never really know. So here's what's going to happen. I am going to push a button, and my phone is going to send a signal across the internet to a laboratory in Geneva, Switzerland, in which a little gizmo will send a photon, a particle of light, toward a partially silvered mirror. And according to the rules of quantum mechanics, the photon will in part pass through the mirror and in part be reflected off. There will be detectors that will find out whether the photon went one way or the other. And once that happens, quantum mechanics says, there will literally be two different universes created, one in which the photon went one way and one of which the photon went the other way. A signal will be sent back to my phone in which that will be translated into instructions to either hop left or hop right, which I will then do. <laughs> Let's see if Michael Faraday could do that. Here we go. Okay, and again, this is not a simulation. This is really actually happening. There really is a little beam splitter there in Geneva, and it's telling me that I should hop left. I did it. Thank you. You've been a great audience, thanks. Uh, no, there's more to come, but the point is, according to the theory that I'm trying, going to try to explain to you, and maybe even persuade you of its reasonableness, there literally is another version of the universe that has just come into existence where a version of me is standing there, and I actually believe this is true. And maybe you won't actually believe it's true, but at least you'll understand why someone like me would believe it's true when all is said and done. Of course, the topic here is quantum mechanics. If, if you're not here to hear a lecture on quantum mechanics, something has gone terribly, <laughs> terribly wrong. Uh, but the reason why I would like to talk about quantum mechanics, you know, the honest reason, is because I've written a book about quantum mechanics that you could buy right now on your iPhone without leaving your seat. But... Um, if you know even a little bit about quantum mechanics, your question should be, why in the world do we need another book about quantum mechanics? And I think that there is a reason, and the reason is, 
implied by this famous quote by my Caltech predecessor, Richard Feynman, I think I can safely say that nobody understands quantum mechanics. Now, I usually don't like to appeal to authority when I'm giving these lectures, but when the thing I'm trying to demonstrate is that physicists don't understand quantum mechanics, I'm allowed to appeal to someone who, if anyone, should have understood quantum mechanics. What in the world does it mean for someone like Feynman to say no one understands quantum mechanics? He used quantum mechanics every day. In fact, we can use quantum mechanics to extraordinary precision. We can make predictions. We can do the experiment. We can see the outcome. The rules of quantum mechanics are obeyed. The problem is we understand quantum mechanics and use it in exactly the same way that I use my iPhone. I can send signals, I can use apps, I can send texts, even phone people on my phone. But if you say, what's going on inside? How do I build one of these? What are the details? I have no idea. That is the relationship that professional physicists have with quantum mechanics. They can use it, but if you ask them what's really going on under the hood, they say, well, we have no idea. And that's perfectly fine when it's me and my phone. It's really embarrassing when it's me and, when it's physicists and quantum mechanics. And the really bad thing is not just that physicists don't understand quantum mechanics. Not understanding is perfectly fine, right? Not understanding drives science. We don't understand something, so we then try to understand it. The problem is that in the case of quantum mechanics, we don't even try anymore. There was this time in the 1920s and 30s when the greatest physics minds really thought deeply about what it means when quantum mechanical events happened, but then that, was, that disappeared, that project of trying to really deeply understand what's going on. It was thought to not be serious work. It was thought to be what one did at the end of one's career or at the end of the day, there was a little brandy, you put on your smoking jacket and you think about quantum mechanics. It was not really what real physics is made of anymore. So if you ask many physicists today, like what's really going on with quantum mechanics, they'll say, no, 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 we don't care about that. We don't want to know. So the metaphor, the parable that I'd like to borrow from is Aesop's fable of the fox and the grapes. You know this one? The fox sees there's a nice juicy bunch of grapes up there. It goes, oh yes, I want these grapes. Fox jumps up and down to get the grapes, but the grapes are just, just out of reach, just a little bit too high. So the fox says, you know what? I never wanted those grapes anyway. They're probably sour. You're not supposed to explain your parables, but just to make things clear, the fox represents physicists. <laughs> the grapes understand, un represent understanding quantum mechanics, okay? Physicists tried, they failed, and now they've convinced themselves they never wanted to try. And I think that that's wrong and that's embarrassing and we should do better. So I have an idea, it's not my idea, I have a favorite version of quantum mechanics I would like to pitch to you, but much more important than my favorite version is the idea that we should be able to understand it. It's not mystery, it's not magic, it's just science. So let me remind you uh, where quantum mechanics came from, why we invented this whole scheme. You know, we started out in the 1600s with classical mechanics. Isaac Newton figured out the way the world worked according to a very simple set of rules. And this set of rules was so good, so compelling, that the idea that classical mechanics was not right just never even entered people's minds. It was a framework in which you could do physics and everything else from, you know, electromagnetism to Einstein's theory of general relativity fit into the framework of classical mechanics. 
Quantum mechanics is something entirely different. It's not an improvement on classical physics. It's a replacement, wholesale. Newton was wrong. Quantum mechanics is saying something very different. And there's no place more vivid than that than this picture that you've all seen, the cartoon of an atom, the Rutherford atom. I love giving these talks in England because all these things happened in England, right? And Newton, classical mechanics, Rutherford did his work here at Cambridge. Um, and Rutherford says, we, we knew about atoms, we, we came up with atoms in the uh, 19th century, but then there was this plum pudding model where the atom was a big fuzzy thing with charges distributed inside. It was Rutherford who showed that's not right. The atom has most of its mass concentrated in the center, in a nucleus, and then electrons are very light charged particles that orbit around the nucleus. And this is still the picture you are shown today, right? We've all seen this picture. And there's some usefulness to this picture. It gives some uh, intuition about what's going on. It's really the electrons that are doing all the work in something like chemistry or electricity in a material or something like that. The heavy nucleus just sits there. The electrons can jump from atom to atom. But I'm here to tell you this picture is nonsense. It is not the real world, and I can tell you why it's not the real world, because as I alluded to, in the 1800s, people like Michael Faraday invented something called the theory of electromagnetism. James Clark Maxwell especially put the finishing touches on it, and according to that theory, if I have a charged particle like an electron, there's an electric field coming out of it, so if I move the electron a little bit, the electric field shifts to point toward where the electron is. So if I take the electron and I shake it up and down, there's a wave that propagates out from the electron, and we call that light. We call that electromagnetic radiation. All of the light in this room comes from shaking electrons up and down and watching the vibrations distribute in all directions. Guess what? This picture has an electron zooming around in a circle. It should be emitting electromagnetic waves. It should be emitting light to beat the band. And that means the electron should be losing energy. It should not stay in a stable orbit. It should actually spiral toward the center of the nucleus. And that should happen very quickly. You can run the numbers. You can do the math and show that it takes about a hundred billionth of a second for the electrons to go from their orbits down into the center of the nucleus. So here's an experiment we can all participate in right now. We can ask, you know, here's a table, there's atoms in it, here's you and me, there are atoms, and I predict that if classical mechanics is true, a hundred billionth of a second from now, they will all collapse into a point. <laughs> Ready? There. It didn't happen. <laughs> so there's something deeply wrong about classical mechanics, and it took a long time, it took a lot of smart people thinking in different ways to come up with an explanation of what might be going on. Here's the explanation they came up with, and it's really dramatic, and even though it took a while, to be honest, it's amazing that they came up with it as quickly as they did. The explanation is that electrons are not particles. It's a pretty dramatic explanation, so I want it to sink in, that electrons are deep down, they're really waves. Rather than thinking about the electron as a little point moving in an orbit like a planet in the solar system, you should think of the electron as a cloud, a wave-like cloud concentrated near the atomic nucleus. And for those of you who are tortured by chemistry classes as college students, you recognize these orbitals, which are the different shapes that electron wave can take. Just like if you have a string that is tied down at both ends and you pluck it, 
there's sort of a fundamental frequency, then there are higher harmonics. Likewise, the electron wave has its lowest energy state and then various highest, higher energy states where it looks more complicated. So the reason why the electron does not spiral in and collapse to the center of the nucleus is because its lowest energy state is not sitting point-like at the center, but being spread out like a wave. Okay, circa the mid-1920s, people came up with this idea. And you can actually explain data using this. You can explain why the light emitted by atoms has a certain form. Even better, there's an equation. It's important that I show you the equation because at the quiz that will be handed out at the end of the lecture, <laughs> you will have to do some problems. Sorry. This is the Schrodinger equation invented by Erwin Schrodinger. And actually, we're not going to go through the details here. The point is that there is an equation. It's very pretty. It's like a little piece of concrete poetry, if you, if you want to think about it that way. But the point is that not only do we have an idea, electrons are waves, not particles, we have a new equation to replace Isaac Newton's equation. Isaac Newton's equation is F equals ma, forces mass times acceleration. You tell me where a particle is, how fast it's moving, Newton's laws in classical mechanics will tell you what it's going to do next. In quantum mechanics, you tell me the wave function, very boring name, sorry about that, the wave function of an electron, Schrodinger's equation is going to tell you what it does next. On the right-hand side of the equation, is it asks how much energy is there in the wave function. On the left, it says, Here how here's how fast it's going to evolve over time. So that makes physicists very happy. Equations are what make, you know, warm their heart a little bit, because it's full employment, really, for physicists. And it's certainly full employment for physics students. Solving the Schrodinger equation keeps them up at night when you're uh, second-year undergraduates doing your quantum mechanics. Here's the problem. Exactly because you have an equation and the equation is unambiguous in what it says happens, you can say, not just for electrons in orbits, but for any phenomenon, period, the Schrodinger equation should apply. If you're saying that quantum mechanics is a fundamental replacement for classical mechanics, you can use this equation to make all sorts of predictions. Here's a kind of quantum mechanical phenomenon. An, a, a nucleus of an atom might be unstable, right? It decays. And when it decays, it might emit an electron or another charged particle, and the Schrodinger equation will predict how that electron gets emitted. Remember, the electron is a wave. The way it gets emitted will look more or less like some big spherical cloud that moves away from the radioactive particles. Here is what it actually looks like. This is a real picture of a little bit of uranium in a cloud chamber that is emitting radioactive particles, and when the charged particle moves through the chamber, it excites the atoms around it, and they leave a little track, okay? So these little trajectories represent particles being emitted from the radioactive substance. They're all straight lines. They're trajectories. It's as if a particle has moved through once it was emitted from the radioactive substance. That is not what is predicted by the Schrodinger equation. The Schrodinger equation says there should be a wave, big puffy thing going out in all directions. What you see when you look at it is as if the electron looks like a particle. So it's almost as if the electron is kind of like a wave when you're not looking at it. <laughs> but it's a particle when you look at it. 
Okay, so in the late 1920s, the greatest minds in physics thought about this. Einstein, Bohr, Schrodinger, Dirac, Pauli, Heisenberg, and they came together, they had meetings, and they fought and everything, and they came up with a theory of what was really going on. And their theory is the following. The electron is like a wave when you're not looking at it, <laughs> and it's like a particle when you look at it. Sadly, this is the state of the art, even today, and it's called the Copenhagen Interpretation of Quantum Mechanics. So the way that we resolve this apparent paradox is to say that the electron it has a wave function, it's a spread out kind of thing, some kind of cloud, but then when you look at it, the wave function changes suddenly, dramatically, and unpredictably. You don't know exactly where it will change, but it will collapse onto a point so it looks like a particle, and the best you can say is to predict the probability that the location of that new particle will be here or there. And the rule is, the bigger the wave function at any one point in space, the higher the probability that the particle will be found there. Okay? These are the rules of quantum mechanics as we currently teach them. I will not at the end say, ha ha ha, those 20, 1920s physicists just weren't that smart. Uh, this is still what we teach our students today. There are two sets of rules for quantum mechanics. The first set of rules apply to quantum systems when you're not looking at them. And they say there's something called the quantum state of the particle which we call the wave function. And there's an equation that exactly governs what the wave function actually does in time. This is precisely parallel to classical mechanics. There's a state and there's a set of equations that tell you how they evolve. But classical mechanics stops there. Quantum mechanics has a whole new set of rules for what happens when you look. When you look, the wave function changes. Suddenly, it collapses to a particular value, collapse of the wave function, and you don't know where it's going to collapse to. All you can do is say the probability. And this is what we teach people in textbooks. So this should bother you a little bit. It's not your fault if it's bothering you a little bit. You should actually be bothered. Many people are bothered when they're students and they first hear this, and when they ask questions, they are told to shut up. <laughs> and if they keep asking, they're told to leave the field of physics. But just to explain this a little bit more, let's, uh, my favorite thought experiment, of course, Schrodinger's cat, right? This is something uh, you've heard of before. Um, Schrodinger's cat is not meant, like a lot of people think the point of the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment is to impress you with how counterintuitive quantum mechanics is. Schrodinger and Einstein were two people who, when this formalism of quantum mechanics was invented, didn't buy into it. Schrodinger, despite having invented the Schrodinger equation, once the, you know, the full formalism was put together and the interpretation of his equation was as a way to get probability of things, he literally said, I wish I'd never had anything to do with this. He did not return his Nobel Prize, but you know, he momentarily <laughs> felt bad. The point of this thought experiment, which Schrodinger and Einstein invented over the course of letters sent across the Atlantic Ocean, was not to say, wow, quantum mechanics is impressive, it's to say, surely you don't believe this, okay? So the point is to take a quantum wave function that puts a certain system in a superposition of different possibilities and amplify it from a microscopic system to a macroscopic system. So he takes a radioactive decaying nucleus and puts a detector next to it, which will say, okay, it's decayed or it's not decayed. So according to the rules of quantum mechanics, the nucleus has a wave function that is a superposition of both I've decayed and I've not decayed, so the detector is in a superposition of I have detected you decaying and I have not 
And according to this gizmo that Schrodinger imagines, if the detector clicks and sees a radioactive decay, it opens up a container that has gas in it. And the gas fills the wider box that's contained in it, which also contains a cat. Now, in Schrodinger's original formulation of the thought experiment, the gas was cyanide. His daughter later said, I think my father just didn't like cats. <laughs> I love cats. So in my version of the thought experiment, it's my lecture, it's sleeping gas in the box, okay? So according to the rules of quantum mechanics, the cat evolves into a superposition of I'm asleep and I'm awake. So it's really important, all these words in that sentence. It's not that we don't know whether the cat is asleep or awake. It's that the state of the cat, according to the rules I just told you, before we observe it, literally is both, a little bit of both, a superposition of both awake and asleep. In other words, classically, we could describe the cat as maybe it's awake, maybe it's asleep, I just don't know. That's an epistemic question, not an ontological one. It's a question about what I know, not what really is. Okay, Quantum mechanics is saying something different. So the notation here is classical things are in square brackets. Quantum things are in parentheses. Quantum mechanically, the cat can be in a superposition of both awake and asleep at the same time. And then Schrodinger says, if I believe the malarkey you were trying to sell me on the previous slide, only when I open the box and observe it does the cat become one or the other. So let's tell that story according to the textbook interpretation. Part of the ideology of textbook quantum mechanics is that the observer, the physicist, doing the measurement is treated as if they follow the rules of classical mechanics. So even though you are made of atoms, and we all think the atoms obey the rules of quantum mechanics, according to the Copenhagen interpretation, you do not obey the rules of quantum mechanics. You obey the rules of classical mechanics. So the cat is treated quantum mechanically, parentheses, the observer, in this case played by Niels Bohr, is treated classically, okay? So there's no wave function for the observer. What happens is the observer opens the box, the cat was in a superposition. Once that observation gets made, either the world is such that the cat was awake and the observer saw it awake, or the world is such that the cat was asleep and the observer saw it asleep. Two different distinct choices, and you can calculate the probability of either one. The problem is, this is clearly crazy pants. This is nutso. No one could possibly take this seriously as a fundamental theory of nature, right? I mean, there's many issues here, and people like Einstein and Schrodinger raised their hands in the back of the room and said, surely you can't believe this, and no one listened to them. So let me just mention two of the problems that are very, very clear here. One is, is very famous and has been mentioned many times, the measurement problem of quantum mechanics, right? In those rules I taught you, there's a role played by observation or measurement, by looking at things. So the measurement problem is, is just, what do you mean, look at something? Does it have to be a human being looking at it? Can the cat look at itself? Does that count? What if it were not a cat? What if there were just a video camera? What if it were an earthworm or an amoeba? What if I just glance at it? <laughs> What do you mean a measurement? When does it happen? What qualifies as a measurement? How quickly does it happen? Is it instantaneous? Why is it probabilistic? And again, if you're in the back of the room in your quantum mechanics class and raise your hand and ask these questions, you're told not to ask these questions. You're not given sensible answers. But there's an equally bad problem that I call the reality problem. I said at, at the beginning, you know, the electron is a wave called the wave function. 
But is it really? Because the whole point of those rules is that we never see the wave function. Whenever we look at the electron, it looks like a particle. Is the wave function really representing reality, or is it just a tool we use to predict the outcomes of potential measurements we could do? Or do we need more than the wave function? Is wave function part of reality, but not all of reality? What is reality? We don't know. And this is why, in many discussions of quantum mechanics that physicists try to give to wide audiences, they get confused themselves. You know, is the atom mostly empty space? No, if you think the atom is mostly electron wave function. But yes, if you think the electron is secretly a particle inside the wave function. So we don't know the answer to these very, very basic, easy to ask questions that should be embarrassing. There's a long history, of course, of young people entering the field and saying, I'm going to answer these questions and then being kicked out of the field. Uh, one such person was Hugh Everett, who in the 1950s came up with what is called the Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics. He didn't call it that, but you know. And the wonderful thing is that Everett, in some sense, was being more of a therapist than a physicist. <laughs> he was giving a way for physicists to accept reality in a way that they apparently were in denial about. To these questions, what is reality, what happens at a measurement, he offers very simple answers. He says the wave function represents reality. That's it. There's no extra stuff, and it's not just the tool to make predictions. It is isomorphic to reality. That's it. And what happens when you make a measurement? There's no collapse of the wave function. There's no sudden, unpredictable, probabilistic, stochastic thing. There's just the Schrodinger equation. The Schrodinger equation applies all the time to everything in the universe. Bold words indeed, but we already gave an argument that that can't be right, right? Because the Schrodinger equation predicts the things coming out of the uranium should go in all directions, but we only see them go in trajectories. But still, before we resolve that, I do want to make it very clear how simple this theory is, right? Compared to the Schrodinger, compared to the Copenhagen interpretation, the rules of Everettian quantum mechanics are beautifully simple. He just erases all of the rigmarole about observations and measurements and collapses. He says there are wave functions and they evolve according to the equation that you already know. He doesn't add anything at all to the formalism of quantum mechanics. He just takes things away. The problem is, how in the world can this map onto the reality that we see, map onto the reality that says when we look at electrons, they look like particles? There's two things that Everett made use of that, he, that are absolutely part of quantum mechanics. He's just saying you should accept them. One is the fact that you are made of atoms, and therefore you are part of the quantum world. You are not classical. That might be a nice approximation that works in certain circumstances, but honestly, the observer should be treated quantum mechanically just like the thing being observed. The other thing he makes use of is a, is a phenomenon of quantum mechanics called entanglement. This was something that was really first emphasized by Einstein. You know, Einstein, if anything, is underrated. <laughs> He's rated pretty highly, I know. <laughs> Man of the century, right? Person of the century. But there's this reputation that by the time uh, quantum mechanics was put together in the late 1920s, there's literally a conference, the Solveig meeting in 1927, where Einstein and Bohr and the others hashed out the rules of quantum mechanics. And there's this speech we give ourselves about how by that time, Einstein was a little bit old, he was slowing down, he was too conservative, he couldn't keep up with the new physics. 
He was 48. <laughs> I do not want to admit that at that age, one is too old to keep up with the latest advances. The truth is that Einstein understood quantum mechanics better than anyone. The problem was he didn't accept it. He didn't think it was done. He didn't think that the Copenhagen interpretation was good enough. And one of the things he invented by thinking hard about it is this phenomenon of quantum entanglement. So I will illustrate it by thinking about the Higgs boson, discovered just in 2012. They didn't know about it in Einstein's time, but it's a nice illustration because other than the Higgs boson, every particle, every fundamental particle that we know about in nature has what we call spin. It rotates. And because of the rules of quantum mechanics, just like when you look at the cat inside the box, you never see it in a combination of a awake and asleep, an electron that is spinning when you observe the spin, you always see it's either spinning clockwise, which we call spin up, or it's spinning counterclockwise, which we call spin down. It's never actually any superposition of those two possibilities. The rules of quantum mechanics say that when you're not looking at it, it is a superposition of those two possibilities. The Higgs boson does not have any spin, but it can decay into two particles that are themselves spinning. And the nice thing about that is the total amount of spin in the universe stays the same when that happens. So if a non-spinning particle converts into two spinning particles, you know that the two spinning particles have to be spinning in opposite directions so that their spin cancels out. So here is the quantum mechanical prediction. The Higgs boson, with zero spin, decays into two particles, a particle and an antiparticle, we don't know, if we were to observe the spin of either particle, what answer we would get. But we do know, if we observe the spin of one of the particles, the other one is opposite. So the thing that the Higgs boson decays into by the rules of quantum mechanics is a combination, a superposition, of particle one is spin up, particle two is spin down, plus particle one is spin down, particle two is spin up. There's no possibility of they're both spin up. That would violate the conservation of spin, the conservation of angular momentum, okay? So this just comes out of the need to preserve conservation of angular momentum, but it's a very profound thing. This is saying the following very, very big difference between classical mechanics and quantum mechanics. In classical mechanics, you have a bunch of particles, and I could give you their states one by one. This particle's doing that, this other particle's doing the other thing. You might think that for quantum particles, they each have a wave function. Particle one is some combination of spin up and spin down, so is particle two, but no, that is not how it works. There are not separate wave functions for every bit of the universe. There is only one wave function, whatever it called the universal wave function, what Stephen Hawking calls the wave function of the universe. And according to the wave function of the universe, these two particles are related. They are entangled. We don't know what answer we will get if we measure the spin of particle one, but we know that it will be the opposite of the spin of particle two. This is something that they didn't really know about in the 1920s, but Einstein and his friends pointed out in the 1930s, and it wasn't until 20 years later that Hugh Everett put it to work to understand the measurement problem. So here is the Schrodinger's cat experiment according to Everett. There is only one wave function, the wave function of the universe, and you are part of it. So now the observer is in parentheses, the observer is a quantum system, the role of the observer is now being played by Hugh Everett, 
and we're not going to have any magical wave function collapses, etc. All we're going to do is run the equation, the Schrodinger equation. You and I obey the Schrodinger equation just like electrons and cats. So when you open the box, there's nothing mystical, nothing magical, nothing sudden. There is an interaction, a physical relationship that comes into being between the observer and the thing being observed, and that entangles those two things. So it is absolutely unambiguous that the Schrodinger equation says that what you get when you open the box is a superposition that is entangled such that the cat's awake and the observer saw it awake, or the cat's asleep and the observer saw it asleep. Everyone agrees. That's what the equation predicts. The problem is no one has ever entered, opened a box, looked inside, and felt like they're in a superposition of having seen the cat awake and having seen the cat asleep. No one has ever felt like they're in a superposition of having seen the electrons spin up and spin down. So it's not that this makes no sense mathematically. It's the claim is this is not the world. This is not the world that we experience, okay? How, Mr. Everett, are you going to map this very beautiful theory onto reality? The answer is, I left something out. Maybe you were clever enough to catch that I cheated a little bit. I just told you there's not a separate wave function for every bit of the universe. There's only one wave function for everything at once. And yet, I wrote this wave function as if the only thing that exists is a cat and Hugh Everett. I really should technically include the entire rest of the universe in my wave function. Do not be alarmed. Uh, this is easy to do. We invent a word for the rest of the universe. We call it the environment. It doesn't matter. So the environment with a specific state doesn't really matter. What matters is the environment is going to interact according to the Schrodinger equation with the cat and with the observer. So the environment, for example, in this room, it's everything I don't keep track of. It includes all the atoms in the air. It includes all the photons of light coming from the light. Oh, look, there's a whole balcony up there. Hi, everybody. <laughs> you're a great audience, yes. Um, you're not part of the environment. I do care about you. <laughs> but in the box, there's the environment as well as outside the box. So what happens is long before you open the box, the environment, the photons and the atoms inside the box interact with the cat. You know, you imagine if the cat is walking around and awake, a certain photon might be absorbed by the cat, whereas if the cat were lying down and asleep, the same photon might go right on by. So this is a phenomenon called decoherence. That cat does not maintain its separate identity just by being in two different places, depending on if it's awake or asleep, it instantly becomes entangled with the environment. So we have a situation where before I've opened the box, there's a cat that's awake and the environment has measured the cat to be awake, or the cat is asleep and the environment has measured the cat to be asleep. And then I open the box, and that's what I call measurement, but the action has really already happened. I then become entangled with the cat and the environment. And now this is just slightly different than what I showed you before. It's still a situation where there's part of the wave function where the cat's awake and part of it where the cat's asleep. But again, I don't keep track of the environment. I don't really know what's going on in it, but what I know from this kind of analysis is it's completely different in the world where the cat's awake and the world where the cat's asleep. So different that what's going on in the part of the wave function where the cat's awake is now completely independent of what's going on in the part of the wave function where the cat's asleep. If I change, if I perturb or tweak one part of the wave function, it doesn't affect the other part anymore.
So what's happening, in other words, is that decoherence, the entanglement of the cat with the environment, has branched the wave function to two different pieces which evolve independently from then on for the rest of the history of the universe. They do not affect each other. They do not care that each other exist. It is as if they have become two separate worlds. That's why the effort interpretation of quantum mechanics was later dubbed the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. It predicts, just like the phone, that every time I measure a quantum system by entangling it with the wider world, two copies of the world, or many more copies of the world, are created, each of which a different measurement outcome was obtained. What I want to emphasize is... Everett didn't take an infinite number of worlds and add them to quantum mechanics, right? Everett just accepted that the worlds were always there. If an electron can be in a superposition of spin up and spin down, and you trust quantum mechanics, then you can be in a superposition of having seen the electron spin up and having seen the electron spin down. And if you trust that, then the universe can be in a superposition of one or the other. And the math says those different parts of the superposition go their own way. They're independent. They don't interact anymore. So it's not that Everett put a whole bunch of worlds in to solve the measurement problem. He said that they were already there. And he says, you know what? It's okay. Just let the worlds be there. Trust your equations. Ask what you would observe if the world were like that. It's what you actually do observe. So this is the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Now, shockingly, not everyone agrees that this is the right interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, I could go through a long list of, you know, I had in, in, in different slides, I deleted the slides, but there's a, a whole bunch of things I had which were the dumb objections to the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, but then, you know, you worry that someone in the audience believes those objections, and I'm calling you dumb, I don't want to do that. Uh, but let me just preempt one objection that is very, very common, and sadly, it's the objection I do the least good job of explaining why it's, it's not an objection, but it's the, really, it's the one point in the talk where I feel like what I really want to say is, just believe me on this, okay? Just, if, if you knew the math, it would all be crystal clear. And the question is, where does the energy come from? to make all of these universes. Like we look around in the universe, there's again tables and things and floors and planets and galaxies. There seem to be a lot of energy, a lot of stuff. And you're telling me when I put the button on my phone, there's now twice as much stuff. That seems like hard to reconcile with our ideas that energy is conserved. So again, the math here is crystal clear and it's very difficult because our intuition doesn't stretch there to translate this into ordinary language. But the Point is that worlds are not created equal, okay? The, there's a thickness or a weight that you can imagine attaching to the different worlds in the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And what happens is as more worlds are created, they get thinner. The total thickness of all the worlds remains the same. They're exactly proportional to the wave function squared, which gives you the probability of finding yourself in one world or another. So if you weight the amount of energy in each branch of the wave function by the thickness of the branch, that's a number that remains precisely identically conserved over time. So according to the equations, there is something that is conserved that you can call energy, and it's a certain weighted combination of the energy of all the different worlds. It does not take more energy to make the worlds. Again, 
despite the fact that this is compelling and obviously true, there are people who don't buy it. So I do want to give some airtime to the possible alternatives because the phrase that is often used for this kind of questioning are the interpretations of quantum mechanics. And it makes it kind of sound like literary criticism, you know, that we're looking at the world and sort of thinking about it in different subjective ways, but that might have been true in the bad old days of the 30s and 40s. These days, the alternatives to many worlds, like many worlds itself, are legitimate, rigorous, well-defined physical theories that are distinct from each other. They're not interpretations of quantum mechanics, they're just different physical theories. So one possibility are hidden variable theories. Uh, David Bohm is the name that is most famously attached to these. He, uh, you know, his, his PhD advisor, was Robert Oppenheimer, J. Robert Oppenheimer, famous physicist, who you know, supported him a lot until he invented an alternative theory of quantum mechanics. <laughs> and then the quote that Oppenheimer gave at a seminar was, uh, you know, if we can't, um, what is it, if we can't stop Bohm, we must at least agree to ignore him. <laughs> and the hidden variables theory, which Einstein was also sympathetic to, is a very straightforward way of dealing with this problem that electrons seem to be wave-like when you're not looking at them and seem to be particle-like when you are looking at them. It's to say there are both. That the wave function is not all of reality, the wave function is part of reality, but in addition to the wave function, there are also particles. So these particles are the so-called hidden variables that pick out the place in the wave function that you actually end up observing. Another possibility is that wave functions really do collapse. And Roger Penrose is someone who's advocating an idea like this. There's an, uh, another idea called GRW theory, where this measurement process is not induced by someone looking at it, but just something that will randomly happen if you wait long enough. For one particle, a particle whose wave function is all spread out will spontaneously localize once every 300 million years. That takes a long time, but in a table, there's a gigantic number of particles. So the table stays in one coherent spatial location because one or more of its particles is always localizing and they're entangled with everything else. So these are two different real physical theories with different variables, different equations, potentially different experimental consequences, and that is the state of the art. So if you agree with me, that we should try to understand quantum mechanics, but disagree with me that many worlds is the best theory, there are alternatives that you can try to explore. What I want to do in the last third of the talk, you know, you all know there's a rule when you give talks, right? Science talks, where the first third of the talk is understandable to everybody. <laughs> the second third is understandable to people who have bought your book. <laughs> and the last third is not supposed to be understandable to anyone at all. We are about to enter the last third of the talk. <laughs> but at least if the details are not perfectly crystal clear, the moral should be clear. The moral that I want to try to get across is it matters what goes on in quantum mechanics. It's not just that, you know, we can't maybe say exactly what happened when a measurement occurs, but still it's good enough to make progress in physics, I think it's actually not true. I think that by not facing up to the fact that we don't understand quantum mechanics, we have been held back in our attempts to do other questions in physics. We have this idea that the world is quantum mechanical, but we don't act that way. Even when I say we, I mean professional physicists, highly paid smart people, okay? We all have an intuition that is basically based on classical mechanics. You know, we think that there's something called a table and it has a location in space. 
Very old-fashioned to think that. <laughs> and nevertheless, that's how we talk. And it extends to how we develop new theories of stuff in the universe, whether it's the electromagnetic field or quarks or oscillators or whatever. We start with a classical theory and then we quantize it. We try to promote that classical theory to a quantum mechanical theory. The problem is nature doesn't do that. Nature doesn't start with a classical theory and then quantize it. Presumably nature just is quantum from the start and classical mechanics is some approximation, some limit, some version of a very narrow part of reality that works pretty well in certain very specific circumstances. So therefore, there's no reason why this procedure of starting with a classical theory and quantizing it must work all the time. Maybe when the things that we're trying to understand are very subtle and nuanced, you have to start with the quantum description from the beginning and then find the classical description as an approximation to it somehow. That's a job that is perfectly suited for the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. The many worlds interpretation talks about wave functions and the Schrodinger equation. It talks about entanglement and evolution through time, purely quantum mechanical notions. You can put in classical notions like positions and momenta if you want, but they're not intrinsic to the theory. Unlike every other version of quantum mechanics, it doesn't rely on any pre-existing classical baggage. So let's see if we can't make a little bit of progress on a hard problem. For example, quantum gravity is a hard problem. What does that mean, quantum gravity? Here's Einstein again. Everyone shows you pictures of Einstein in his later years, where the hair was big and gray and he's wearing the rumpled sweater. But back in the day, when he's inventing relativity, he was a well-dressed young man and someone was combing his hair. <laughs> And he had these wonderful ideas, special relativity and general relativity. Special relativity, 1905, he kind of weds space and time together. The speed of light is an absolute maximum. I think there's an upcoming Royal Institution lecture about the speed of light, right? Gets rid of the ether and so forth. Ten years later, in general relativity, he says, you know, this space-time thing, this four-dimensional place where we live, has a life of its own. It's dynamical. It can be curved and bent. And you and I perceive and interpret that curvature of space-time as gravity. The reason, according to Einstein, why apples fall from trees is because the Earth exerts a force on space-time itself to curve space-time so that apples want to naturally fall with the trees not holding them up. So this is a wonderfully successful theory of gravity that fits perfectly into the classical Newtonian paradigm. It's different than Newton's laws of physics, but it fits into that world where, in principle, you have a something, the curvature of space-time. There's an equation, cleverly called Einstein's equation, that tells you how space-time curvature evolves over time. There's nothing quantum mechanical about it. But of course, we also have quantum mechanics, so we want to reconcile general relativity with quantum mechanics. That's the goal of quantum gravity. Now, for every other force of nature that we know about, electromagnetism or the little nuclear forces, the Higgs boson, the electrons and the quarks, this idea of starting with the classical theory and quantizing it works pretty well. It hasn't always been easy, right? Richard Feynman won his Nobel Prize for quantizing electromagnetism. It took a lot of real brain power to do that. But still, eventually, you get the right answer. For gravity, we fail. 
you try to quantize general relativity, you get nonsense. Quantities that should be finite numbers are infinite. You don't even know what the terms mean. It's just kind of a mess. So I would like to suggest that's because we've been doing the wrong thing. I need to mention one more thing. There's the motto at the bottom there, geometry is related to energy. This is the very, very simple essence of general relativity. The geometry of space-time is influenced by, and in turn influences back, the energy of the stuff within it. So to turn that into a quantum theory, what I want to suggest is that maybe you shouldn't be quantizing gravity. Maybe what you should be trying to do is to find gravity within quantum mechanics, within the wave function of the universe. I mean, after all, we say, oh, we have not been able to understand quantum gravity, but then we admit we don't even understand quantum mechanics. What right do we have to think that we should be able to understand quantum gravity? So let's try something new. Now, when we do this, we're allowed to sort of cheat just a little bit by using features of the world that we do understand and that we do know. Well, one thing we know is that when we forget about gravity and just think about the other forces and particles of nature, the best way we have of describing them is this framework called quantum field theory. All the talk that I've been giving you about electrons and protons and, and particles is kind of just an approximation to the real underlying thing, which are quantum fields. And we're in the right place to talk about that, the person more responsible than anyone else for saying the world is to start starting the idea that fields are fundamental was Michael Faraday with the electro, electric and magnetic fields. So here's a magnet, right? And you put the magnet, and if you don't put any iron filings around it, it's just empty space outside. But you and I know there is secretly a magnetic field everywhere around the magnet. In modern quantum field theory, what we say is that literally everything, not just forces like electricity and magnetism, but even matter particles like electrons and neutrinos and quarks, are really part of vibrating fields that fill all of space. So that's a big change in perspective from a particle-based view, at least when it comes to the nature of empty space, okay? In a particle view, you have particles that have locations, and then in between the particles, there's nothing but empty space, okay? There's nothing going on. Empty space is boring. Whereas in the field-based view, a particle is just a way of talking about a field vibrating more than it does in empty space. But even empty space, the fields are there. They're just in their lowest energy state. They're doing the minimal thing it's possible to do. So we talk about modes, the different vibrational frequencies of the quantum fields. Even in the emptiest region of empty space, there's an electron field, a magnetic field, an electric field, a gravitational field. All of them have a certain quantum state. Those modes of the fields are doing something. What they're doing is looking like empty space. But they're there, and that's very important. Because what that lets us do is talk about the entanglement of those different fields. Remember, we don't, if we're being quantum first, we don't have a lot of words to work with, but one of the words we have is entanglement, okay? So you will not be surprised to hear that if you have different regions of empty space with different vibrating quantum fields in them, those fields will be entangled with each other, and guess what? The closer they are to each other, the more entangled they are. So if you start with empty space and you have a geometry, whether it's Euclidean or Riemannian or whatever you want, whatever level of sophistication you've reached, it will be the case that the 
Empty space parts of the quantum fields have a very simple relationship. You know how close things are just by measuring their entanglement and vice versa. So the idea, the proposal, the suggestion, the guess, the hypothesis, is that we can reverse that. Rather than saying the closer the, quantum, the areas are, the more entangled they are, we can say, the more entangled these bits of the quantum field are, the closer they are. We will define what it means to be nearby to mean highly entangled. And we will define what it means to be far away to be not very entangled, okay? So what we're doing here is asking whether space itself and the geometry of space, right? Distances and angles and all that stuff can emerge in some natural way from a quantum wave function that does not have space built into it from the start? And the answer is yes. If the wave function has certain properties, if the entanglement structure works out in a certain way, you can map that quantum wave function and say, oh, this is three-dimensional space. A different quantum wave function would represent five-dimensional space or a two-dimensional plane with different amounts of curvature and so forth. So there's a relationship between geometry of space and the entanglement of quantum fields in that space. Meanwhile, there's also a relationship between the entanglement of the fields and the energy that they have. In this picture I showed you right here, there are no particles. This is literally supposed to represent empty space, okay? Let's put some particles in it. What does that mean in this language? That means we take the quantum fields and we vibrate them a little bit. And what that does is it breaks the entanglement between that little vibrational mode in that region of space and everything around it. So by decreasing the entanglement, we did something that we know in our, in our intuition is equivalent to putting energy in the system by putting a particle there. If you add a bunch of particles until you made a table, you would have to break a lot of the entanglement of the vacuum modes of this region of space with the region around it. And in fact, you can make this into equations. Again, full employment for graduate students at Caltech, figuring out how to relate the amount of entanglement in a region of empty space to the amount of energy that you would perceive being there. And there's an opposite relationship. The more energy, the less entanglement, and vice versa. So what does that mean? That means we can start with entanglement, which is a purely quantum mechanical notion, nothing classical about it. We can say that under the right circumstances, a certain geometry of space emerges from the entanglement structure of the quantum wave function. And at the same time, we can associate a certain amount of energy with the amount of entanglement we have in the wave function. Therefore, by arrows, there's a relationship between geometry of space in this emergent description and the amount of energy that is lurking there in the space. And that is exactly what Einstein taught us a little bit over 100 years ago in general relativity. Einstein did not speak the language of entanglement when he was doing this. He just said, there is a direct relationship between energy and the geometry of space. I have an equation for it. I call it Einstein's equation. Okay, We're deriving Einstein's equation with a whole bunch of assumptions, but we can say we can see where this comes from at a more fundamental level. This is an ongoing program. I don't want to like, you know, give you too much of a sales pitch. There's, it's completely possible that everything I gave you in the last three or four slides is utter nonsense. 
okay? This is a speculative program in which we don't try to quantize gravity, but we try to ask how the features we know about gravity can emerge from a purely quantum mechanical description. So far, it seems to be pretty promising. It looks like it might be able to work. Now, stay tuned, right? Wait a few years, let's see if this works. There's a lot of smart people pursuing other versions of quantum gravity who will say this is all unlikely to succeed, but we just don't know yet. That's what it's like at the edge of theoretical physics. What I like about it is that it really uses at least the philosophy of Everettian quantum mechanics, that you don't start with positions and locations and particles. You start with a quantum wave function. Everything else comes from that. So I will close with a quote from another British physicist, David Deutsch, a proponent of Everettian quantum mechanics, who says, despite the unrivaled empirical success of quantum theory, the very suggestion that it may be literally true as a description of nature is still greeted with cynicism, incomprehension, and even anger. So I hope that what I've told you tonight at least lowers your incomprehension <laughs> a little bit. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I am definitely going to feel for at least the next 15 minutes that <laughs> I understand quantum gravity. Perfect. I've got the arrows, and I'm going to be walking out there saying, got no the problem. Yeah. But in the meantime, we do have uh, about half an hour for questions. So uh, let me open up the floor. Um, so I think I saw a hand go up right here first. Thank you. Um, in uh, the sort of fundamental theory of computation, um, essentially when you destroy information, it costs energy. And so obviously the lowest cost of energy in computation if you have a reversible computation. Mm -hmm. In the Copenhagen theory, you're destroying information. But in Everettian, you're not, even though it goes off in different directions. Right. So would there be a measurable energy difference when you examine a qubit, if you, when you observe a qubit? Yes. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> but this turns out the reason why it's a it, it is there's it you, you deserve more words than that um, because it's a subtle question actually. Um, the transition, you know, remember the picture from the wave function being all spread out to be looking like that. That seems to be you know a sudden dramatic change that could very well involve a difference in energy. The way it works is the localized wave function actually has more energy than the one that is spread out. The spread out one is sort of the resting place for the electron, so the energy went up in that procedure. Now, Copenhagen, people say, like, how do you test the Copenhagen interpretation versus many worlds? The answer is you can't, not because of many worlds' fault. It's because Copenhagen is not well-defined enough. But something like the spontaneous collapse theories really do say the wave function collapses like that, and that should add energy to the system, and over time, the universe heats up a little bit. And that is the basis for ongoing experimental probes of those theories. In Everettian quantum mechanics, there's something different you can do, which is literally a paper that a student and I are writing right now. I, I told you that energy is conserved overall in the wave function of the universe. I did not tell you that the energy of every branch was the same. And in fact, you can set up circumstances where the total energy is distributed unequally 
between the different branches. So when you measure your qubit, if your qubit is, let's say, in a magnetic field, so that it has more energy if it's spinning one way than the other way, and you measure it, you will have a different energy of the universe if you get one answer than the other, but less energy in the other branch of the wave function. Uh, there's a, a program on TV last week called um, Einstein's Quantum Riddle, in which you featured, albeit very briefly, <laughs> <laughs> right at the beginning or right at the end. Um, but the scientist right at the end was trying to uh, tell us that quantum entanglement was part of a holographic universe. And all the information that's being um, sent down to us is what we interpret as space-time. Right. Now, if that's true, is quantum entanglement just a byproduct of the uh, Big Bang? Or does it exist like some Narnia, a true reality, and all we've got to do is step through the back of the wardrobe? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a hard question to answer. The good news is I've written a book, and I, <laughs> I talk about this in the book. Um, the short, the, the honest answer, the version, the short answer, just like I gave uh, the previous questioner, the short answer here is we don't know. Okay, so holography is an idea that I did not talk about here, but could be talked about. Uh, it's something that seems to become important when the gravitational force becomes strong. So when you have something like the Big Bang or a black hole where gravity is incredibly strong, rather than, there's, there's this implicit idea in this, these pictures that every location in space something is happening, something in principle independent from what's happening everywhere else. In a black hole, it seems that what's happening can be thought of as happening at the boundary, at the two-dimensional horizon of the black hole, rather than being distributed everywhere in the three-dimensional volume inside the horizon. That's holography. But it's not, it's not true that you're not supposed to think that there really is a two-dimensional space in the wardrobe where you could go visit. It's just that there are different ways you can talk about the world we live in. One way, it looks three-dimensional. Another way, at least in, under some circumstances, it looks two-dimensional. The real lesson is the dimensionality of space is overrated. It is not something that is fundamental. It is something that emerges under different circumstances in different ways. This guy was saying that quantum entanglement actually exists at the edge of the universe. Surely it's, it's all around us. Yeah, he wasn't actually saying that. He gave you the impression for saying that because there is a toy model of the universe called anti-de-sitter space, which is certainly not our universe, but is very mathematically pretty. And therefore, there's a certain subclass of physicists who like to pretend that we live in that universe <laughs> because they can solve the equations in a very direct way. And in that universe, you can think of everything that happens in the universe as living on a boundary that is just two-dimensional at the edge. Sadly, that is not our universe. And so applying the lessons from that analysis to the real world is a little bit tricky, which is why I say at the end of the day, we don't know. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot more to talk about on that topic, but let's give somebody else a chance. Um, I think I saw a hand way up at the top there. Yes. Hi. Yeah, my question is, in the uh, average interpretation, um, a measurement splits the universe, and yet we still haven't defined what measurement is. That's my first um, question. Second Let's question is... Let's stick with the first one just for now. <laughs> Otherwise, I might forget it by the time we get to the second one. Yeah, no, I did totally define what measurement is. It's exactly this. <laughs> measurement is when the quantum mechanical system becomes entangled with its environment. But at what point? I mean, how do you know that... that, that 
at that particular point, there's a measurement taking place. Uh, there's an equation <laughs> that you solve, and the equation says exactly how much entanglement there is at every moment in time. The reason why the extraordinarily smart people who invented the Copenhagen interpretation got away with it is because the speed at which decoherence happens is very, very fast. You know, we had a little joke about the 10 to the minus 11 seconds that it would take an electron to spiral to the center. The cat would decohere with its environment in less than 10 to the minus 21 seconds. So effectively, when decoherence does happen, it happens right away. Hi, uh, mind-blowing. <laughs> I, I, it keep, it will keep me busy for a long time. I'll read your book, certainly. Thank you so much. Thanks. Uh, and it's great to, to be so near to you. Um, <laughs> so uh, I've been <laughs> thinking, thinking a little bit about this uh, dark matter and dark energy. And the, your idea of, correct me if I'm wrong, of uh, gravity sounds like an entanglement. Um, effect and how, how the gravity is intense or less intense is also a function of entanglement, right? Amazing. Uh, I'll think about it. So how would you put this dark... It sounds like, sorry, my French, BS, when you talk about dark matter. And, That's English. No, yeah. you got it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you. Yeah. So how would you say, um, how could you explain this dark energy? It feels like entanglement, right? Yeah, well, so... That's another question to which the only strictly correct answer is we don't know yet. We don't know what dark matter and dark energy are. Uh, the short version is, in the 1990s, for those of you who spent your time more productively, uh, we discovered that the, we discovered the inventory of the universe. You know, the stuff that you and I are made of, tables, chairs, atoms, particles that we've discovered in laboratory experiments, makes up 5% of the universe by energy. Another 25% is some other kind of matter, some other kind of particle that we've not yet seen in an experiment, cleverly called dark matter. And the other 70% is something called dark energy, which isn't even a particle. It's an energy that suffuses all of empty space and pushes things apart. There's no reason to think that dark matter and dark energy are anything other than another kind of matter and energy. It's not different in spirit than electrons or protons or stuff like that. It's just that they're dark. But you know what? The air in the room is dark. Dark in this case means light goes through it. It really means transparent. That's what dark matter and dark energy are. So we know that there air is in the room because when I move my hand, I feel it. Even though it's dark, I can feel it. And likewise, we know that there's dark matter and dark energy in the universe because it affects gravitationally the motions of galaxies and particles and other things. So I don't think we're going to need to dig into the nuts and bolts of quantum gravity to understand dark matter and dark energy once we finally do. Interesting question for you, but though in all your multi-universes, does time go in the same direction? Does time ever go backwards in your equations? In the things that I've talked about today... Time always goes in the same direction. So, yeah, time goes in the same way in every universe here. Now, there's a much longer... Everyone's asking questions that deserve an hour. So, like, how many hours do I have here to answer these questions? 
there's a difference between time as a thing, as a coordinate on space-time that measures when you are, versus the arrow of time, which gives you the directionality, the past versus the future. You could imagine a universe in which time existed, but there was no arrow of time whatsoever. And you could imagine universes in which the arrow of time was reversed, even though it came out of the universe that we live in. None of that has any direct connection to what we're talking about here. So those are perfectly permissible cosmological speculations. Luckily for you, I wrote a book about them <laughs> called From Eternity to Here. Uh, but it doesn't, have, it doesn't tie in directly to this. No, time moves the same way in all these multiverses, yeah. Hi. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if you had, or if you could explain the dual slit experiment in terms of um, the many worlds theory, or if that has a kind of simple explanation. Yeah, sure. So, um, again, you've been cheating on me. You've been learning quantum mechanics <laughs> in places other than this lecture. So there's something called uh, the double slit experiment, where you pass a single electron through two slits. You couldn't do that if it were a particle, but if it's a wave, it can go a little bit through both slits. And then as it goes through, the wave sort of spreads out in ripples and can constructively interfere or destructively interfere, which means that you're likely to see the electron some places and not others. So if you do this over and over again, you see an interference pattern that tells you that indeed the electron was a wave when it went through the slits. But according to the rules of quantum mechanics, if you just look at the slits while the electron is going through them, you measure which one it went through, and then it's like a particle. It's not like a wave anymore. And indeed, miraculously, when you do that, the interference pattern disappears. You have stopped the electron from going through both slits. So Many Worlds has no problem with something like that. All you say is that when you measured the electron going through the slits, that electron became entangled with you or whatever the detector was. The wave function of the universe branched, and rather than there being one universe in which the electron's wave function could interfere, there are now two universes, and the electron's wave function can no longer interfere, so the interference pattern goes away. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Bob's um, your uncle. I see several questions over here. Can I ask you in the middle? Um, my question is, um, due to the acceptance of the Big Bang, um, does that mean every um, particle in the universe is entangled, or future particle will be entangled? And are tachyons the same as entangled particles, or are they something separate? Good. So tachyons don't exist. That's easy. <laughs> tachyons, if they did exist, would be particles that travel faster than light, and that would be a disaster for all sorts of reasons. Um, the other question about the entanglement of all the particles is, a harder, you know, trickier question, and in fact, is closely related to this arrow of time question. <sighs> Entanglement leads to entropy. When two particles are entangled with each other, you know less about the state of either one of them, which we can mathematically quantify by saying it has a higher entropy. The early universe seems to have a very, very low entropy. Near the Big Bang, the entropy of the universe was very low. So what that really means is that particles were not entangled near the Big Bang, and that, then they become gradually entangled, and that's why you start with one big branch, and it goes more and more as particles become more and more entangled. What we don't know is where that asymmetry comes from. 
why there's a difference between the top and bottom of this picture, why everything was unentangled at the start and becomes entangled later. We don't know. I'm, you know, I'm older than 48, so I'm too late to come up with great <laughs> ideas to explain these things, but I encourage the youngsters in the audience to uh, put their noggins to work on these questions. I'm trying to put my head around how many multiple universes there are. And it's gotten to the point that it's almost inconceivable. For example, the cat. We could have a sleeping cat, we could have a, an awake cat. We could have a sleeping cat with fleas. We could have an awake cat that's having a, a fur ball. <laughs> we could have an observer with fleas and an observer who's having a coughing fit. That whole, you, we can have you standing over there as opposed to standing over there and me holding this in my left hand. Now e each one of those splits like that for every single breath that all of us are taking, I've kind of got lost there. <laughs> how, how does that, I mean, that's really nice because there are like 12 of those. Yeah. <laughs> but It's actually much worse than that. One of my favorite what, what, uh, facts from your book is that the human body has about 5,000 atoms that undergo radioactive decay every second. So that's two to the 5,000 branches every second. And that's just me. Just because you, uh, How many yeah, have I had to I know. know? Right. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot you? of branches. What are you doing? <laughs> so, um, so how does that work with a multi-universe in a, in a way that humans can comprehend that? Well, imagine uh, the real numbers between zero and one. Divide them in half so that you have the numbers between zero and a half and the numbers between a half and one. Then divide them in half again, between numbers between zero and a quarter, and a quarter and a half, and a half and three quarters. You never run out of numbers. Can you, how thin do the universes get? <laughs> so, so do they disappear, they're so thin? This becomes embarrassing at some point, but the answer is we don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the slightly longer answer is, I wrote a book. Yeah, I'm there. And I talk about this. We don't even know whether the total possible number of universes is finite or infinite. And in my mind, this reflects the fact that we haven't been trying to answer this question. We haven't really been focusing our brains on the foundations of quantum mechanics to the extent that we should have in the last 90 years. I can give you a good argument that the number is infinite, in which case there's plenty of room. I can also give you a good, number, a good argument that the number is finite, but if the number is finite, the kind of numbers that it might be are things like 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123, which is plenty of room it's for all room, the divisions that you thin. need. Yes. Then the universe gets very thin and it becomes something other than another universe. It becomes a, another wave? No, once you're in the universe, so there's a couple things going on here that I should also mention. For one thing, breathing does not branch the wave function of the universe, okay? The wave function of the universe doesn't just branch because you do something or don't do something. The wave function of the universe, as we said before, branches when a quantum mechanical system in a superposition becomes entangled with the environment. That happens a lot, but it doesn't happen just because something happened, right? The, wave the, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics does not say there's a world in which every different possible thing happens. It says the wave function obeys the Schrodinger equation. And the Schrodinger equation is gonna lead to some kinds of universes and not to others. So there's a lot of universes, but there's not literally a different universe, a different branch of the universe for every possible thing you can imagine. But nevertheless, 
you're, there is something going on in, in your question. The thinness of the branch you're in is not something that you have any idea what it is. Like right now, we're in a branch of the wave function. How thick is it or how thin is it? Yeah, you have no idea. There's no measurement you can do. There's nothing you can do. You don't feel thinner, sadly. <laughs> it doesn't, like you can branch the wave function. It doesn't have any effect on how you feel, okay? But there is a process going on. There are two processes going on that are not completely distinct. One is all of these branches are separating from each other, differentiating from each other. The other is in each universe, Space is expanding, stars are using up their fuel, galaxies are moving away from each other, the universe is emptying out. So even though all these branches are becoming different from each other, within each branch, the universe is kind of moving toward an identical future. So when you get far enough in the future, even though there's a lot of branches, they all look the same. So at that point, way, way, way in the future, literally uh, a Google years from now, it will be difficult to even talk about different branches of the wave function. That will no longer be an appropriate description. Wow. Thank you very much. Uh, gentleman in the front row, I believe, has been waiting for some time. I've got lots of dumb objections to the many worlds interpretation <laughs> of quantum mechanics, but fortunately for me, that's not my question. If um, you send me your picture, I can put it on a slide. <laughs> I, I, in a, in a car, kind of cartoon history, of quantum mechanics. Einstein's portrayed like the kind of Luke Skywalker or Han Solo, hero of the resistance. Mm. And uh, Bohr is Emperor Palpatine. He's the dark force trying to hold back um, a realist interpretation of uh, quantum mechanics. Now, sadly, Einstein died in 1955, and Hugh Everett's thesis wasn't available until 1957. Yeah. But have you thought what Einstein would have made of Everett's proposal? Have I thought of it, you say? Have I thought about that? <laughs> the epilogue of my book talks about exactly this. And of course, the only fair answer is we don't know what Einstein would have thought about this. Because, but it's, it's more than just, you know, it's a hypothetical question, but there are two very strong commitments that Einstein had, which many worlds goes in one direction for one and the opposite direction for the other. One is he was very, very committed to space-time. He liked space-time. He liked there to be locations of things. I mean, he had a right to be fond of space-time, being Einstein, right? <laughs> so he liked the idea that space-time was a thing, whereas I just told you a story where space-time is kind of a fuzzy approximation that is no, no longer fundamental. He would not have liked that, okay? He would not have liked the fact that there are not definite outcomes in any one universe. On the other hand, I think he had an even stronger commitment to things making sense, to there being answers to questions, to there being equations and patterns and laws of nature that gave unambiguous answers to whatever kind of question you ask. He wanted a mechanistic description of what happened in the world. The title of this book, Something Deeply Hidden, is a quote from Einstein. It's a quote that he gave when he was reminiscing in his later years about growing up and he was given a little magnetic compass, right? The famous uh, story that he tells when he was a kid, he was given this compass and he's like, I can move and no matter where I move, it knows where north is. How does it know? And he says, there must be something deeply hidden that explains that. 
And that was his objection to the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, that it just seemed like a mystery. And many worlds, like the other alternatives to it, attempt to provide that deeply hidden thing. He would have liked that. He was also rather anti-metaphysics and dismissed Bohm's interpretation as too cheap. So I, I do really wonder um, whether that's a correct characterization of what Einstein might have made of it. <laughs> Let's go right up to the top here for the next question. A lot of the way that we use quantum mechanics is, is largely statistical and, and to do with probabilities. And so if, the, if I understand it right, the many worlds kind of says that every possibility or everything can happen. So then are there, are there worlds where, for example, the experiments that determined um, Bell's inequality theorem came out the other way and everybody's understanding of quantum mechanics is totally different and there's a Sean Carroll kind of standing <laughs> there looking and saying, well, actually, quantum mechanics is something completely different to what you're saying it is today. Yeah, so there's a couple things going on here. One is, I, I can't emphasize strongly enough, it's not that everything happens, okay? For example, a very, very simple example is there's no universe in which a proton turns into an electron. That would violate the conservation of electric charge, and that literally never happens, according to the Schrodinger equation. So there's plenty of things we can imagine happening that just don't. Still, as we discussed, there's a lot of things that happen, and one of them would be I can line up a whole bunch of particles that are equal superpositions of spin-up and spin-down. I can measure all of them, and I can get spin-up every time, which would be really, really unlikely, but many worlds says it does happen in one branch of the wave function. I did this experiment for the book. I ran a quantum random number generator. I generated 50 quantum bits either zeros or ones, and I got, you know, 26 zeros and, and 24 ones, so roughly 50-50, that's good. And then I put the number in the book, which means that there are two to the 50th different versions of the book out there, textual variations out there in the multiverse, but in one of them, it was a zero every time. And you say, well, what did that version of me think when he got zeros every time? And of course, what he thought was, this isn't a quantum random number generator at all. Someone just broke the machine, right? <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about that. There will be, as your question implies, there will always be, in this version of quantum mechanics, versions of the world in which things that are overall really, really unlikely come true. And the people in them, they're out of luck. Sucks to be them. But they're very, very unlikely. So the, you really got to, if you buy this story at all, you really have to take seriously the idea that not all the worlds are created equal. Hello. Um, so I'm not sure if I understand correctly here, but we talk about sort of the weight or the thickness of each of the branches, right? So if I understand this correctly, that the thickness or the weight is, is sort of synonymous to the energy. Uh, and, and if that's true, then every time a quantum interaction happens in our universe and it splits, uh, then the two branches, in my mind, would seem to contain the same amount of energy because there's no change in the amount of mass that they contain. Um, so does this mean that the energy is taken from another branch somewhere that then contains emptiness? And what happens when the energy from there disappears? Is, do, right. do we know anything about this? <laughs> yeah, so this is entirely my fault at doing a bad job of explaining this. But to my credit, I did say I would do a bad job of explaining <laughs> it. The... 
amount of energy that contributes to the whole wave function of the universe is the energy in each branch times the thickness of the branch. So when one big thick branch divides in two, the amount of energy in each of those branches is basically the same as the branch it came from, but the thickness is only half as big. So the total contribution has remained the same. <laughs> I'm glad you I'll, understand I'll it now. I'll think a little bit about that, <laughs> yes. and I'll get your book. Thank you. I didn't explain it very well in the book either. <laughs> Possibly some mathematics required at some point in there. I'm looking to the center. I see someone at the very back row of the center. We're going to make our microphone runners oh, earn their I know, keep. but this is so good for you. Thank you. Uh, you explained that it was possible to design an experiment where the energy was divided unequally between the two branches. Um, can we do that with entropy and information? Can we dump our unwanted entropy into another branch and get rid of it? That's an excellent question, and because unlike all the other questions, I know what the answer is. <laughs> and the answer is no. Um, in fact, let, let's be super clear about this energy thing. Energy can be distributed unequally between the branches, but you can't control which branch you end up in. So if you do an experiment where the energy could be a little bit higher or a little bit lower than where you started, maybe it will go up, maybe it will go down. There's no perpetual motion machine possibility here. And even with that caveat in mind, entropy is a, is a, is a trickier customer, and we, we, it just goes up. Sorry, it just goes up no matter what we do. We can, we can sort of play with it in open systems that are connected to the rest of the universe, but as far as the universe as a whole is concerned, I should be more careful than that. It goes up almost all the time, but exactly as you can get a uh, weird branch of the wave function where all the spins give you spin up, you could get an unlikely fluctuation into a lower entropy state. That is possible, but it's not controllable or predictable. Well, I think we should end on a like question so you need to answer. Like so many things in life, not controllable <laughs> um, or predictable. And now we can all go get entangled outside. Thank you like so that. much, Sean Carroll, an absolutely mind-blowing talk. Much. That's all for this month. Thank you for listening. Please leave us a rating and a review to let us know what you thought of this episode. And if you want more like this, head to rigb.org to book tickets for all upcoming talks and live streams from more amazing speakers like Sean. Thank you.